This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning again, church. Please open your Bibles to Philippians 3, verse 17. I'll be reading 17 through 4, 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and, how, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we, wait, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? I don't believe you. You're the only one I believe. You are, he is amazing. The rest of you, I, I don't know where you are. Uh, well, you're here. I hope you'll be here mentally soon, or else I'm preaching to nobody, apparently. Uh, I'm glad you're here, even if you're not. So that'll make up for all of you. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, we're starting our second week into our new series, The Bible and Life. We're talking about the Bible and my citizenship this morning. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I had a lot of friends who were into uh, either sports or comic books some of them were into NASCAR. I don't know if any of you are into NASCAR, uh, but they were. And I just remembered this uh, this morning that I had a bunch of friends who were into um, professional wrestling. And when kids have like there's things that they're into, I don't know if you remember this, but usually there's sports all over their uh, posters all over their rooms. You know, so there's be a poster of Ken Griffey Jr. or Michael Jordan uh, or um, Rusty Wallace. Is that one, Doug? Rusty Wallace, a NASCAR driver, if you didn't know. Um, or, you know, The Rock or Sting, you know, and they'd have all these posters in the room to, like, these are who I'm really into. Um, when I was 10, they didn't have a poster for the guy I was into. But if they did, hanging over my bed would be a poster of Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain of the 20th Maine Infantry. Um, he was the colonel um, around, I think he became colonel around 1862 and served in the United States Army, the Army of the Potomac, up through 1865. When I was 10 years old, I was a Civil War buff, of all things. And my mom was uh, like, you are really, really special, Drew. <laughs> uh, but I loved it. I, I remember really getting into it, and I watched all the movies. In fact, for my birthday when I was 11, my parents got me the two VHS set. You guys remember VHS? There's two of them for the movie Gettysburg because it was like four hours long. I watched the whole thing like multiple times over. I loved this movie. But as I was, I was proud to be uh, from upstate New York because we fought for the North and it was our side that won and that freed the slaves. And there was just this, uh, this burning inside of me to be so proud to be on the, on the winning team and that my country fought to end slavery. And I loved it. And I was proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. Uh, I'll stop there. Uh, but I remember uh, going to high school. 
and you start taking social studies and history in high school. And then I remember learning about the Trail of Tears. And I remember learning other stories about my history as of my country that I wasn't proud of. Things that brought me shame. And like, did my country really do those things? Then I remember my junior year of high school and it was September 11th and I was walking between first and second period and a friend of mine stopped me in the hallway and it's like, hey, did you hear? What? This plane flew into towers and so we run into the classroom and at this time every classroom had at least a computer with the internet so we pulled up the internet and they actually had video streaming even back then. I remember watching this video and then we go from classroom to classroom every period, just turn a TV on, turn, pull a computer up and just watch the day unfold. I remember September 12th and the weeks following and many of you remember this, how there's this, this I would say unparalleled unity in our country and just this refound patriotism and I remember the war in Iraq and I had friends who fought in the war and it looked like a sea of yellow ribbons down main streets across America and we were proud to be Americans and to stand for our country. And then I look at my country today and I'm sure many of you would agree with me, man, it's unrecognizable from 20, 21 years ago. It can be hard. You're like, what? How do I process this? What, what has happened? I mean, 20 years isn't a long time, but it feels like a century ago. What is this place that I call America now? And many of us have been trying to process this. We dialogue about it. We read books about it. We listen to talk radio or listen to talking heads on TV or listen to podcasts trying to understand what is going on. I'm a citizen of this country and how do I process it? But my fear is many of us in the church in America are trying to process all of this as Americans. And that's fine, except for before we're Americans, we're Christians. And we need to stop and say, okay, how do we process this as Christians who have a book that was given to us by our God to help us understand who he is, but also understand this world? And that's why we're going through this series and we're going to go through topics this coming weeks of things that you're dealing with every day, issues that you're struggling with and needing to process that our country is dealing with and how do we think biblically about these issues? Because this should be our lens more than anything else. So this morning, we're going to look at the Bible and our citizenship and how do we understand that properly. And I'm going to tell you this morning, full disclosure, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for this morning. I'm not going to tell you what political party you should stand with or against. I'm not going to tell you what you should think or believe about tax policy or education in America. And there's a place for all those. I think the Bible speaks into all those issues, but I want to stand even a little further above that. I want to get kind of a, a meta view of what the Bible says about citizenship, because I think Sometimes, if not often, we get to the weeds too quickly without understanding really what does it mean to be a citizen. I'll probably generate more questions than you even know that you had this morning. That's good because there's a book that'll answer them for you. But this morning, we're going to look at the book of Philippians. 
not the whole thing, but we're going to jump around a couple different passages in Philippians. And Philippians is a unique book that I think addresses our issue today directly because of what's unique about the city of Philippi. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Philippi. Paul wrote this book to the church in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi is a Greek city. And this Greek city was invaded by the Romans and it became part of the Roman Empire. Now, what happens when Romans invaded different territories, I don't know their decision-making process, but some territories and some cities were granted full Roman citizenship, which is a huge perk. And Philippi was one of these cities. They were granted Roman citizenship, which means they got all sorts of perks. One of the big ones is they didn't have to pay taxes. Wouldn't that be nice? If you were a citizen of Rome, you didn't pay taxes. And there's lots of benefits that Paul even had uh, benefits you read about in Acts 16 of being a Roman citizen. What's also interesting about the people of Philippi is they loved being Philippians. They were very patriotic. They were very nationalistic. They loved their city. In fact, they had Philippian flags on the back of their buggies. They wore Philippian-themed togas. Men wore Philippian-themed boxer briefs. They loved it. Painted their faces at all the sporting events and Philippian flags. I mean, it was huge. And it's to this people, to a church in this city, that Paul is writing this book. And that's why we're going to look at it this morning to address this. This is the big idea that I'm after this morning. I want you to say this at the end of our message today is that as a citizen of heaven and a citizen on earth, I will cling to Jesus. As a citizen of heaven and a citizen on earth, I will cling to Jesus. And we're going to take a little journey to get there this morning. That journey is going to be this. We're going to look at three ways to live as dual citizens of heaven and on earth. Because that's what's going on here. You have dual citizenship between heaven and and earth, and we need to know how to effectively live in those two worlds. We're going to start by looking again at what Doug just read to us in Philippians 3, 17. And the first way we can live as dual citizens is this, is to set your eyes ahead on heaven. Set your eyes ahead on heaven. Let your eyes fall on 317. I want to read this passage to you again. Paul writes this, Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. Does that sound familiar? But our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So this phrase, you probably, if you've been in the church for a while, grew up in the church, you probably heard this phrase before, you are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. That's this verse right here, Philippians 3.20 is where we get that phrase. And it is vital for us to understand what it means to be a citizen of heaven. We have to get this part right first. 
And so often as Christians, we forget this. So I want to spend some time this morning really helping you understand what it means to be a citizen of heaven. We're going to start by looking um, at defining citizenship. We need to define citizenship. So citizenship, again, a phrase we use a lot, but we don't often stop to think about what it means. Really, it's ultimately about loyalty and allegiance. So when you're a citizen of, of a nation or a, or a state or a community, that is where your loyalty is. You are belong to a group of people and to a, a leadership structure. But there's a flip side to it. There's some mutuality to it because that group of people and that leadership structure also recognizes that you belong to them. So there's a belongingness in citizenship. And being a citizen brings all sorts of privileges and rights that non-citizens don't get. And you know this. There's a a lot of perks to being an American citizen. There's things that you get to do that non-citizens don't get to do. But there's a flip side to it. Because not only do you get freedoms and rights and privileges, you also have responsibilities. And you have duties. And that authority that's over you can call you up to do things that they can't call non-citizens to do. Now, with that in mind, Paul says, you are a citizen of heaven. Now, how did we get that? You didn't ask to become a citizen of heaven, but how did you get heavenly citizenship? Well, it starts back in Genesis 3, actually, is where the story begins. You remember in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were created by God. And they were created to be his image bearers, his representatives to rule for him in creation. He was the authority. He was their king. And they were his representatives. And what did they do? Did they obey their king? Did they listen to their king's instructions? This thing is driving me nuts. Is I'm spitting too much into it? I'll spit less. Uh, So they decided... That, you know what, God, yes, we understand that you're the king, but we want to be our own kings. We want to make decisions for ourselves. We don't want to obey you. That fruit that you told us to eat, I know you told us not to, but we think it's good. See, they became their own authorities in that moment. They became their own king, their own God, and they rejected him. That's called rebellion. That's what sin is. Sin is rebellion. And so God casts them out of the garden. And from that moment on, every son and daughter of Adam, except for Christ, has been born with a sin nature in rebellion against their God, rejecting their king. You were born rejecting your king. But our king didn't want to leave it that way. He wanted to be in a relationship with those he made, with those he loved. So our king became a man in Jesus Christ. And he lived a life and he died for your rebellion. He took the wrath that you deserved for your rebellion on himself and brought you into a relationship with your king. He's restored you to relationship with the one who made you. And Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1, Verse 13, he says, 
He, being Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and here it is, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, when you were saved, you weren't just saved to get you out of hell. So you get this, this free train ticket to get to heaven, no more hell. You didn't just get forgiveness. You were brought into the kingdom of God. And you're a part of that now, which means you have a king. Why it's important to understand your heavenly citizenship is this, because it's the gospel. It is the gospel message. There's a second reason it's important, and it's a little more practical. Go back and look at verse 18. Paul wrote, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. See, you live in this world, and if you don't understand your citizenship is in heaven, man, it can get real discouraging. When you read that, man, I read that as I was studying this text, I was like, that's the world I live in right now. With our eyes on heaven, in our citizenship, citizenship, we don't have to fear. In fact, look at what Paul does just one chapter later, a couple of verses later, really, Philippians 4. Let your eyes fall on verse 4 in Philippians 4. This is just coming off that text. He writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness that's a fun word to say, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know how you can have that? Because you're a citizen of heaven. So let me give you some practical things of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. There's a lot I could talk about, but I've there's three in particular I want to address that I think is pertinent for our church in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 2022. The first is this. Our ultimate allegiance is to a king and a kingdom. What I mean by this is your final home, your allegiance, your loyalty is not to America. Ultimately, it's not to America, it's not to Indiana, and it's not to Fort Wayne. You're ultimately answering to, and loyal to, and under the authority of King Jesus. What that means is you can hold your citizenship to all these other earthly domains with open hands. Number two, it means your battle is not against flesh and blood. I think this is so vital to understand our current cultural moment. So I'm going to say it again. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. In fact, Paul will say it's against the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual battle going on. Your neighbors and fellow citizens who think differently, vote differently, and act differently are not who you're battling against. And I know it can feel like that. 
But if those neighbors and fellow citizens are not believers and or are standing for things opposed to God's word, those people don't need defeating. They need rescuing. They need Jesus. They need to be rescued from their own sin. Cameron Schaefer explains this battle this way when he writes, we both live in this world and the heavenly places with Christ now, which is where we wrestle with the principalities and powers. So as the church lives in the world now, it contends against the systems of evil, the principalities and powers that have twisted the systems and structures of God's world against him. So we do contend against principalities and powers, but we cannot be the victors. We plead for God to bring his kingdom, for it is the power of salvation for those who believe. Christian winning comes through resting by faith alone in Christ's victory alone. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And number three, our ultimate hope is in a coming, is in a coming kingdom. Listen, I want to live and I enjoy living in a country that offers life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I want my country to be great. I want all citizens of this country to enjoy the great things that America brings and has done, not just for its citizens, but for the world. I mean, think about this. Because of America, millions have been lifted from poverty. Millions of lives have been saved through advancements in healthcare because of this country. We have brought food to the world. Millions of Bibles have been printed in almost every imaginable language and sent across the globe because of America. Christian books are regularly being published. Think about the millions of dollars that are sent by Americans to support missionaries so the gospel can go forth. That is amazing. I want that to continue, and it's right to want God to continue to work that way. But that's not where my ultimate hope is. And that's where our ultimate hope should not be. Because, listen, I like American greatness. I believe in American greatness. But you know who else believed in greatness? Babylonians. The Babylonians believed in Babylonian greatness. And Assyrians believed in Assyrian greatness. And Romans believed in Roman greatness. In Spain, in Portugal, in England, every empire has believed in their greatness. And where are those empires now? They're gone. Because in eternity, our nation's history will be a blip. This kingdom will fade away one day. America will not last forever. And I don't know when it will, but I know my ultimate home is in heaven. Citizenship of mine is in heaven. And that kingdom will never end. And that's where you are a citizen. That's your hope. So my question for you this morning is, where are your eyes looking? What are you looking to? Where does your hope lay? We have some serious questions we need to ask ourselves as Americans and as Christians. Questions I have to ask myself. I'm going to ask them to you this morning. These are hard questions. When you think about the future, are you more excited are you more excited about a new heaven and new earth or more concerned about what might happen to your country? Are you more concerned with whether someone is voting a certain way or whether they have found the joy of knowing Christ? Do you see community and unity more with people who vote like you 
or with people who are also part of the kingdom of God, his church. If you were asked to die for your country, would you? And how would you feel about that? If you were asked to die for your faith, would you? And how would you feel about that? Do you live in anxiety and fear for our country's future, or are you confident in the promises of God? Listen, there are many good biblical reasons to care about wider cultural issues. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about some of that in a minute. But how you answer these questions will reveal where your priorities are. So the first way we live as a dual citizen of heaven and on earth is to set your eyes ahead on heaven. On heaven. But we're not in heaven yet, are we? The new heavens, the new earth are promised, but we're still living on the old earth. And you have jobs to go to, your kids are in school, you have taxes to pay and groceries to buy, elections to cast votes in and neighbors to interact with. So what do we do about that? Because we're dual citizens, and that leads us to our next point. Our next point is this. The next way we live as dual citizens is to set your hands to serve on earth. To set your hands to serve on earth. To get a better understanding of this, let's look at Philippians. I want you to jump back to chapter 1, just a few chapters before. You might even only have to turn one page. Made it easy for you guys. Philippians chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 27 with me. Verse 27, Paul is writing, this is the, the first instruction in this letter to the church in Philippi. He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What's of particular interest to me is this phrase here, only let your manner of life, manner of life. See, the original language, uh, which was, this book was written in Koine Greek, was the original language of the New Testament. The, the Greek word behind manner of life is the same root word as the, in the verse we just read back in 320. That was translated as citizenship. So really, you can translate this, ver, this, this word in this verse as citizen. So Paul could have said, or it could have been translated as, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Or as you go about your daily life contributing to the civic life of Philippi, do so in a manner worthy of the gospel. So you see what Paul just did here. He has bookended his letter, essentially, with citizenship. On the front end, he's saying, you are citizens of Philippi. You need to live in that way, worthy of the gospel. But you are also citizens of heaven. Dual citizenship. In the manner which you live your life as a citizen on earth, he says, is worthy of the gospel. Now, I've summed up all that he's going to say in the next little bit in regards to being living worthy of the gospel as setting your hands to serve on earth because that's what the gospel should propel you to do. When you are saved, 
When you are brought into right relationship with Christ, you are forgiven of your sins and you are left here on earth. We're left here to serve. And we're going to see here our, our service is done with both an attitude and with some action. With attitude and with action. The first attitude, there's two parts to it, is humility. We serve with humility. You see this when he talks about the unity. When he says in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit. Or when he says one mind striving side by side. It takes humility to live in unity. But it becomes even clearer if you jump ahead just a couple of verses to Philippians chapter 2. Look what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what Paul just did here? He just made a connection between your daily civic engagement and the gospel. Because if you are going to be engaged in society, which you have to be, the gospel needs and ought to inform that, and it drives you to humility. And humility is not something that Americans are particularly great at, is it? We can be a proud people, a bit arrogant at times. And I'm not saying there's not great things that America's done. I just told you all the great things that America's done. But why have we been able to do those things? Is it because of us? It's because God has allowed it to happen. Every good and perfect gift, James says, comes down from the Father of lights. So everything we've done great as a nation all the things that make you want to sing, I'm proud to be an American, is a gift from God. And it's for his purposes. The elders have been reading a book called Humility by Andrew Murray. Um, Elder Doug recommended it, and we're like, that sounds great. So we've all been reading it. It's written back in the 1800s, and it's a phenomenal book. I recommend any Christian read it. But he has this to say about humility. He says, humility is the place of entire dependence on God. He goes on a couple paragraphs later to clarify, and he says, humility is simply acknowledging the truth of one's position as creature and yielding to God his place. So service is found in an attitude of humility, but it's also in an attitude of being fearless. You see this in verse 28 when Paul writes, that to the church in Philippi, they're not to be frightened in anything, not frightened in anything by your opponents, he says. See, when you're citizens of heaven, when you're on earth, that means you have nothing to fear. Nothing. Our service is not just done with an attitude, but there are actions. And again, this is another area I could list a whole bunch of actions that I believe we should step up and do as citizens, but there's three in particular that jump out to me that are particularly relevant for us. The first one is this, is submission to God-given authority. 
Submission to God-given authority. First Peter talks about this. You can see the verse on the screen. I'm not going to read it this morning for the sake of time, but First Peter 2, 13 through 15, Peter talks about how the Lord has put authorities in place all over the globe throughout history. So you may have voted for somebody who's in power right now, but the reason they're in power is because of God. He placed them there. And because he placed them there, we are called to submit. And we submit up to the point where we are asked to do something that goes against God's word. Other than that, we submit. Whether you like it or not, you may not like that the speed limit on Cook Road is 35 miles an hour by the airport. Super annoying. But I don't get to make the law. I'm called to submit. That's what God's word says. And I'm really bad at it. So that's why I need Jesus. Number two, respectful participation. Peter goes on in that text in verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as, here it is again, servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. See, you all are citizens. We talked about this. Citizenship comes with responsibility. And one of your responsibilities as a citizen in a democratically elected republic is to participate, to vote, to care about what goes on in this country. You, you can't not, not engage. That's part of your duties as a citizen here in America. But you do it open-handed. And you do it in love. You do it in humility. Because here's the thing. You, we all claim that we're to love our neighbor. But you know loving your neighbor is not just sharing the gospel with them. It's not just mowing their lawn. But it's actually caring about tax laws. Because those tax laws have an impact on your neighbor's ability to make money. The road that's being put in through some neighborhood has an impact on your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, you should care about how the things and the laws in this nation are affecting them. It's called loving your neighbor, serving you do in humility with fearlessness. We can't ignore it. We need to respect our neighbors as fellow humans made in the image of God. And that's why we participate. Jonathan Pennington writes this in his book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher, another read I highly recommend. Don't be scared by the title. Very accessible. He says this, Christians are not free to ignore this world, but instead they are free to relate in a gracious and humble way, knowing their citizenship is ultimately something more and greater and different. The third action is prayer for our leaders. First Timothy 2, Paul talks about this encourages the church to pray for all of our leaders. Why? Because they're appointed by God, and God desires that all people be saved. See, we need to get our loyalties in proper order. We are free to engage in civic duties without frenzy or fear when our loyalties are in proper order. We can engage without panic and act like every issue is a crisis when we understand that our citizenship is in heaven. We can engage for the good of and in love for our neighbors, knowing that even if things don't turn out the way we want them to, it's okay because God's in control. 
His kingdom is coming. It can't be stopped. So even if the school board meeting doesn't go the way you want it to, or HR introduces some new crazy policy, or your HOA requires your kids to wear masks at the pool, or the guy or gal that you wish would get in office doesn't, if none of those, if those things are true, you can still move forward without fear, in humility, with hope, because God has only asked you to be faithful, and he has promised that all things work together for your good and for his glory. So I have to ask you, what is your level of engagement in your community? In your engagement, would people recognize you by your Christ-likeness? How are you demonstrating your care for others? And do you engage out of love for your neighbor or fear of losing what you think is yours? So the second way we can live as dual citizens is by setting our hands to work here on earth. The third is this, is to set your heart on Christ. I say that because the reality is, and we all are feeling this more and more every day, being a citizen of heaven often comes in conflict with being a citizen on earth. And those two worlds seem to be increasingly at odds with each other. And what does that mean? How do I live in light of that? Well, again, I think Paul tells us in Philippians, But I want to ask you, did you know that all debates about government and politics and social structure actually boil down to a debate about the good life? What do I mean by that? Well, 2,300 years ago or so, give or take, there's these two guys named Plato and Aristotle. You ever heard of them? These are ancient Greek philosophers. And these Greek philosophers, emphasizing Greek on purpose, where was Philippi located? Greece. Coincidence, maybe, or not. These Greek philosophers, they debated about a lot of things. And the one thing they debated about often was what is the good life? How do you define the good life? And in their understanding, and this is true, this isn't like something they presented as a proposal, this is just reality, is that governments and social structures are designed to support what people think the good life is. Case in point. Our founders believe that the good life is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Did you know that? The, that wasn't an accident. They knew their Plato and Aristotle. And our governmental system is set up to support that belief that everybody deserves life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I'm not here to debate this morning about whether that's biblical or unbiblical or any of that. I'm using it as an illustration because what I'm really after is, does the Bible have anything to say about what the good life is? Absolutely. And Paul has something very important to say about this. If you're in Philippians, go to three and look at verse seven. Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, for Paul, he had the good life from a Jewish perspective. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. This is what he said before this text. If you go back and read Philippians 3, 1 through 6, you're going to hear Paul's pedigree. This guy had it all. From a, if a Jew looked at him, he's like, man, that guy's got the good life. But not only that, he was a Roman citizen. And we just talked about all the perks that comes with that. So Paul is saying, look at all these things. This is, this is what people think the good life is. And what does he say that is? He says, I count that as loss. You know what that word loss is in the Greek? It's the same word they use for a shipwreck. And in Roman times, when a ship sent, goes to the bottom of the ocean, James Cameron and his submarine ain't going to find it. It's gone. It's done. He goes on to say, I count all these things as rubbish. The original language, that word is the most explicit term for human refuse. That's how worthless all that other stuff is compared to knowing Christ. So what is the good life for Paul? It is knowing Jesus Christ. Listen, Christ died for your sins and rose again so you could have the good life. So you can be in a relationship with your king, with your creator. The relationship you are made to have and all the comfort, all the security, all the pleasure, all the approval that your heart is constantly longing for is right there. And he won it for you because he loves you. So let me bring this back to your citizenship because this is what heavenly citizenship is offering you. Because the reality is we live in a broken world. And your fears about the future of this city, of this state, of this country may come true. Your political rival may gain more power. The economy may get worse and worse. Tyranny may reign across this land. Presidents may turn into dictators. Education in America may go down the toilet. And all the hopes and all the dreams that you have for your kid's future, for your own future may not come true. Your kids may never experience life in this country like you did. They may never have the economic opportunities that you had. Your retirement plans may go out the window. Our privileges as Americans may vanish. We may lose it all. But you know what you never lose? Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait until heaven to have the good life. You can have it right now. You have it right now. And all those other things, those great privileges we have as Americans, all the freedoms that we enjoy day in and day out, that lives were lost to give us, all those things pale in comparison. They're rubbish compared to Jesus Christ because he is madly in love with you so much that he would die to bring you into relationship with him. And he is pleading with you to say, Find it in me. I'm all you need. And when you have that, you can lose anything. Because guess what you have in prison? You still have Jesus. 
When you have no money, you still have Jesus. When you are in the pit of suffering, you actually know Jesus even better, Paul says, because you're sharing in the very sufferings that he experienced. Can you see how understanding that this is the good life changes everything? You don't have to fear what happens to your citizenship. You don't have to live in anxiety. You don't have to be angry. You can love and serve and give and fight for what's right with open hands and a heart full of love. And most of you know that my time as a pastor here at Redemption is almost done. But I am honored to finish sharing this with you because there's nothing more I want from you, my church, nothing more than for you to walk away with this plea that you would love Jesus more. That you would see living in love with him and living for his kingdom is always, always worth it. And it's worth it because he loves you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine and he is for you. You have nothing to fear, church. Nothing to fear. And anything that may come, anything that he allows you to lose, it is only so you can see that he is all you need. He is the good life. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you first for this great country you've allowed us to live in. God, it is here because of your good good heart, your gracious kindness towards us. We don't deserve it. Many men and women have died for this country. And we want to thank you for that and not take it for granted. But more than that, God, your son died to give us eternal life. And there is nothing greater than knowing him God, may I and my church be able to say we count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Help us to know how great his love for us is and to view our citizenship, our relationships, our lives here on this earth through that lens, knowing that we can't lose the greatest treasure because it's been won for us. Let us go here changed. Let us go from here with a heart to tell the world of what the good life is found in Jesus Christ. And it's his, in his precious, precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.